Thank you for listening to the New Life Church podcast. If you need any information about our church or if you'd like to give online, please visit us at newlifekingman.com. We just want to welcome everybody that's joining us online as well. We are very glad for you. Um, we, we have an online church and we have our church here and, and we're one big family. Amen. Praise God. Well, if you have your Bibles, you could turn with me over to the book of Hebrews today. The book of Hebrews chapter number 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3 out of the New King James Version. And I'm going to read our text right off the bat just kind of to set the tone. And so I want you to listen to the Word of God. It says this, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the Word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and obedience or disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? Now, this is a powerful portion of Scripture. It's a, it's a passage of Scripture that I think that's relevant for us today, and I think it's something that we need to pay attention to. And I just want to take a moment, if I can, and kind of set the backdrop to this so that you understand what's happening here. The book of Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews, is a book that is written to Jewish Christians. In other words, what had happened is during the time of Christ and then Paul and the New Testament church and all of that, the gospel's being preached and, and people are coming out of Judaism and they're coming into Christianity. In other words, Jews were recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, their Savior, and they're turning their lives over to him. And they are slowly but surely migrating in their belief system and in their doctrine to where they are beginning to live by what we would call Christianity today. So what was understood at that time is that Jesus was the fulfillment to the law that no longer did they have to uh, be all about the ritualistic ceremonies and all of those things, but that their faith in Christ is what brought righteousness to them. Paul was a, a very uh, large voice in the change of that doctrine. And as you can imagine, it was quite controversial. I mean, everything is being turned upside down. It, there's lots of persecution. Not only are people being persecuted because of the, the, the Roman nation state, but now Jews are beginning to persecute people that recognize Christianity. So for a Christian, they kind of got a double whammy at this time, and it's getting pretty hard to live. I mean, they're being, you know, their businesses are being uh, confiscated. They're being pulled out of their homes. Some of them are being jailed. Many of them are being uh, 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 killed and, and sacrificed and on and on and on. All this stuff is going on. And so what's happening, the writer of the book of Hebrews, he's writing to these people and he's encouraging them. He's saying, look it, it's worth it. It's worth it to be a Christian. It is worth it to stay with Christ. I know it's difficult. I know times are rough. I know that it seems like it's bleak and hopeless. And, and I know that there's a lot going on. But Jesus is better. 
He says Jesus is better. And so in chapter 1, that's the whole point. He's, he's telling him, he's setting the tone of what he's about to write about. And he's saying, look it, Jesus is by far better, even better than angels and all of these things going on. And he's, he's telling them, guys, be encouraged. This is a good thing. He's, what he's doing is what's called a cost-benefit analysis. He's, he's telling them, hey, actually weigh this out. There's, how many know there's a cost to everything in life? doesn't matter good or bad. There is a cost to it. But what we do is we do what's called cost-benefit analysis. In other words, what we do is we weigh out, is it worth the cost? Is the benefit worth, worth the price that I got to pay? It doesn't matter, I mean, what you face. It doesn't matter what you go through. We all do this very quickly in our mind. So we go, look, okay, I can eat healthy today or I can have McDonald's. Okay, is it worth it? Is it, is it, I do a cost benefit, you know, it's funny, have, I've noticed something when you get older, I, I don't know when it, quite when it happened, but I remember my dad saying, man, McDonald's makes me sick. McDonald's makes me sick. It makes me sick of me. And I'm thinking, when did that happen? Now, McDonald's makes me sick. I, I, and I lived at McDonald's for a long time. I, I, you know, I knew their menu back and forth and up and down, and that's, that was like, hey, I, I think that's fine dining right there. But somehow you get a little bit older and your, your body changes. I think there's hormones and chemicals that are released that kind of reject that stuff. And, and it goes, no, this ain't no good. So what we do is we think in our mind, is it worth it? to have this and pay the price of being sick later? Or is it, you know, is it not worth it? And so we do this, and it doesn't matter if it's an issue of sin, it doesn't matter if it's an issue of temptation, it doesn't matter if it's even investment or, or doing something on your house. What we do is we sit back and we weigh out, is this worth it? And that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's saying, it's worth it. He says, I've, I've determined that even if you have to sacrifice your life and give up everything you know, having Jesus as your Lord and Savior is infinitely worth it. Amen. Can you say amen? amen? So then we come to this place, and in chapter 2, he writes this, therefore. And so I'm going to tell you what the therefore is there for. <laughs> it's not original. I wish it was, but it's... It's one of those pastor things. We, get, we have a whole book. That, no, I'm just teasing. <clears throat> the reason the therefore is therefore is because he is telling them, he says, we must, he goes, therefore, because of everything I just said in chapter 1, we must give more earnest heed. In other words, we need to really pay attention to this. We need to give heed to this. We need to open our eyes to this. This is not secondary. This is not peripheral. This is not incidental. This is a primary thing that we need to pay attention to, lest we drift away. In other words, if we don't make it priority, if we don't make it primary, if we don't pay attention to it, the net result is we will drift away. Now that's important to get. That's important to pay attention to because it's a warning. It's a warning. He's saying if you don't pay attention to this stuff and give heed to it, you're going to drift. I've told people before many times one of my favorite shows on TV is on the Discovery Channel and it's called Deadliest Catch. 
I love the deadliest catch. I mean, if you haven't seen it, the show is all about watching crab fishermen in the Bering Sea. And these guys, man, it's amazing to watch them because these guys will sometimes, they'll work up to 36 hours out in the cold. I mean, in the worst conditions you can imagine. I mean, wind blowing, you know, 80 miles an hour. The temperature is a negative 10. Waves are 40 to 50 feet. I mean, it is horrific. And they're out there working. I love that show. I love the drama of the show. But more than that, I have a bucket list. There's one day before I die, I would love, I don't want to work. I, I don't want to be on the deck. No, no, don't get me wrong. This body don't do that kind of stuff. What I want to do is I want to sit in the wheelhouse. I, I want to just be on the boat in a storm. I want to ride that 50-foot wave, man. I, the closest thing I ever got to it is my wife and I went on vacation, and we found ourselves in Monterey, California, and we spent a few days in Monterey, and they have whale-watching excursions, and so we went down to the, the, the harbor there where the boats are, and, and, and lo and behold, we found a, a company that does that, and so we went up and said, hey, are you going to go out? And they said, well, we don't really know. You know, the, it's kind of rough out there. The waves are getting to be a little bit much, and the wind's picking up, but we don't know. And some guy came out and goes, oh, the heck with it. Let's just go. And I'm like, yeah, man, I like you. Let's go. So there was probably about 10 of us that went on this boat. It's a pretty big boat. So there's only about 10 of us get on there. And we get out, and sure enough, the waves are probably about four foot, four and a half feet. They're not too bad, but the wind is picking up, and the waves start picking up. And I think the waves started... They, when they decided, look, it's enough, we got to come back in, they were probably up to about five or six feet. But as we were out there, you know, we're riding all of this, everybody except the crew and me were on the stern of the boat feeding the fish. <laughs> Kathy did not take Dramamine. She's down there. I'm going, are you, I go every like so often I'd go down, are you okay? Leave me alone. Get away from me. <laughs> and I mean, she was sick. I, on the other hand, am on the second deck, right on the front, just like the girl in t uh, 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 Titanic, that's it. You know, I got the wind blowing in my hair, and, and we're riding the waves, baby. I loved it. I loved it. So I, you know, I love that show, you know, Deadliest Catch, and I would love one day to be in the wheelhouse. Well, I was watching the show one time, and there was an episode that featured a, a, a rescue of a fishing vessel called the Katmai that had gone down. It was a 92-foot ship with 11-man crew, and they were in one of these storms where the wind is really blowing, right? The waves probably 40, 50 feet. I mean, there, there's some big waves going on. It's, it's, it, and, and it was so bad at this point, they weren't out fishing. They had shut fishing down. They're in the cabin, all of this. But then all of a sudden, for some reason, they lost power. They neither had the ability to adjust the rudder and the engines were out. So they had no power. So you, as you can imagine, when you lose the rudder, you lose the ability to steer. And then when you have no engine power, you, you can't even steer with the engines because sometimes they'll do that. They'll, they'll alternate the two engines to kind of give them turn and all that. But they couldn't even do that. So now they are completely adrift. 
And over and over and over in the show, they kept saying that. They kept saying the Katmai was drifting. It was drifting. And so what happened very quickly is the boat got turned sideways into the waves, and one big wave came, tipped it upside down, and the boat sank almost immediately, and only four out of the 11 men were rescued. It was an amazing story. An amazing story of heroism, amazing story of the, you know, you got to take your hat off to those guys that are the uh, Coast Guard uh, rescue swimmers. I mean, because that dude jumped off the helicopter right into that soup to go rescue those guys. It was an amazing thing. And the thing that I came to the conclusion of watching that is the deadliest thing that can happen to a ship in a storm or to a Christian in this life is to find themselves drifting. And that's what I want to talk about because the writer of Hebrews, he's watching the people he is responsible for slowly slipping away or drifting away from the grace and the truth of God's word. These people had committed themselves to the gospel, the very same gospel that Jesus himself had taught, But for some reason or another, they were slipping back into the old habits of Judaism. In most part, what they're doing is they're going back to the familiar. They're going back even though it was worse off, even though the cost-benefit analysis told them that Jesus was better by far. It's kind of like the devil you know, so to speak. They knew how to handle it. It's kind of like the children of Israel, when they get out in the desert, they are now free from slavery, physically, but mentally, they were not free. And so when things started going wrong, and this is the thing I want you to focus on, when things started going wrong, they convinced themselves it's better in slavery than freedom with Jesus. We do that. We begin to think, you know, when we are confronted with crisis, one of the things that happens is we begin to convince ourselves what I was before I met Jesus was way better. See, the reason things were better before you met Jesus is because you were of no threat to the devil. You were, a, you were on a slick slide heading to hell. And you know what? The devil's like, I've already done my job. Just leave him alone. He's moving in the direction. We, it don't matter. Though all of a sudden, you come into this relationship with Jesus. You come into a place where you know Jesus. You're reading the Bible. You're praying. You begin to realize that Jesus is better by far. And all of a sudden, some little imp comes up, and he begins to lie to you, and he begins to convince you that what's going on is not really God, that it's not worth it, that you know what, somehow that life back there was way better. You forget, you know, I used to tell the guys, I, I, used, to, I used to talk about it in Jacob's Ladder, talking about addiction. I, I would talk about alcoholism and I would talk about, you know what, our minds get edited. Because when we get saved, what happens, it's like, man, do you remember the parties? Oh, man, do you remember when we were out partying? Oh, it was so good. We, you know what, we could do anything we want. We were partying and nobody remembers the hangover. No, nobody, and I, this is how I, I'm going to do it for you. This is how we do it in Jacob's Ladder. 
I remember, I, I said, you know what? Nobody remembers that they're throwing up so hard and so violently from being hung over from the tequila and eating the worm at the end that their nose is literally touching the water in the toilet. They don't remember that part. But oh yeah, we was had fun in the party. They don't remember that they didn't wake up in the same bed they started out in. They don't remember they can't remember where their car is. They don't remember all the things they've said and now they're in real trouble. They don't remember the havoc that came into their lives. And somehow what happens is we get convinced that, you know what, I'm just going to go back there because, hey, it's a lot better back there. No, it is not. It's slavery. There's whipping and beating and you have to give your life to something that does not care about you. Now, I know that in this life, in, in, in going through Christianity, there can be some tough days. I know that the devil can come against us, but God has equipped us. He has empowered us. He has given us his name, his word. He's made a covenant with us, and he has proclaimed from the throne of heaven that you are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. If you will just simply stand and hold the line, you win. But what happens, we have this tendency to think, hey, everything is better back there. And we begin to drift. And the result is we become enormously vulnerable to the circumstances of life. And I think today, church, that in this day and age, and I am certain in every other, but I only live in this one, that we really need to pay attention to this warning. We need to take some inventory. One man said this, he says, On the river of life, there are strong currents which, left unchallenged, will carry us downstream. We can either choose to be their passive victims, or we could start actively going against the flow. I'm choosing to go against the flow. And look at when I say that today, the, 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 I think sometimes that gets confused because when we say from a pulpit, a public forum, let's go against the flow, we get this feeling that what we need to do is go out somewhere in a public place and draw a line in the sand and, and make a statement and we need to get on the, you know, and we need to bash everything that's not Christian. That's not what I'm talking about today. See, if you do that, if you do that without real true Christianity behind you, people will see through your facade really quick. And all you really do is just mar the whole picture of Christianity. What we really need to do is draw a line in the sand in our lives. So what we need to do is we, we, we need to work on our integrity, our credibility, our faithfulness. Amen. We need to work on us. And so what we need to do is we need to make a decision that says, you know what, in the face of crisis, I'm going to live for God. Amen. I don't care what the lie is. The Bible says that God is good all the time. Amen. The Bible does not lie. So if my perception is that God is not good, it must be a lie. Amen. And I reject it. Amen. If things aren't working the way I think they should... In other words, I'm not seeing a promise the way I think it should 
come about, then one of two things is happening. Either I have greatly misunderstood the word, or I'm greatly misappropriating the word. Because his word will accomplish that which it was sent to do. That's his promise. And so it's never God's fault. It's always in our realm. And what we have to do is sometimes stop and say, devil, get off. I need to think clearly here. Shut your mouth. Amen. We need to push back. I don't care what you say. I don't care how well you paint the picture. It is not better back there. It's better here with Jesus. Jesus is better by far. And so we have to push back. When I read that statement, I thought to myself, wow, that is so powerful. Because the way I see it this morning, we fit into one of two categories. Either we are progressively moving against the flow of this life, challenging those things that come against us, or we are simply adrift, going with the flow, accepting whatever comes our way. Look, at, let me tell you something. Christianity is never fatalistic. This idea, what will be, will be, is not true. And, I'm going to give you another, it might be a little controversial, you ready? If God wants me to, he'll make me. <laughs> not going to happen. God has never made anyone do anything. Now, God has ways of encouraging you, but he will not make you. Christianity is a lifestyle of decision and deliberateness. It's a lifestyle that says, I am going to be Christian. I am going to believe. I choose to believe. There are days in my life when I am struggling, it's usually leaving church, I'm heading home, and I'll be in my truck, and I'll have had a, a tough day, and I say out loud, God, I choose at this moment to make this declaration of my will that I believe you. Period. I cannot see it with my eyes. I cannot hear it with my ears. I can't feel it with my fingers. I can't taste it or smell it. But I know it in my spirit, and therefore I choose to believe it as you said it. End of conversation. And I push back. That actually happened to me last night. There were some moments last night where I felt hell wanted to push in. I, I felt him. I felt that, see, the devil always shows up, and he's like, you know, he, he never gets loud. He doesn't come in. The devil will not come in like a green-eyed, hairy-legged monster. He won't, because if he does, you'll immediately reject him. But he comes in like a friend. Hey, John. Yeah, what's up? You know that church you pastor down there? Yeah. It ain't going nowhere. Those people don't even like you. In fact, they talk about you all the time. 
I, know, I should know because I tell them what to say. <laughs> and I go, hmm. And then he goes, watch, let me, let me just give you some evidence. You know, the devil, he'll give you enough evidence to make you believe it. But I guarantee you, it's always the obscure. It is never, never the rule. He'll give you, oh, he'll find a person that don't like you. He'll find a person that's actually talking about you. He goes, see, I told you. There's probably about 400, 450 people that come to this church that call New Life home. There may be one or two that do that. And they're really fringers. And so now I'm going to make a choice about my life based on one or two voices out of 450. That's how it works. We need to take heed to what he has said, Jesus, lest we drift away. Now here's the question that I got for you this morning. Are you drifting? And here's the follow-up to that. Would you even know if you were? So, to help you answer that question, I have six things that I want you to know about drifting, and I'm going to try to get through these really quick. Number one, drifting requires no effort. And we like that. Drifting means being driven or carried along by, listen, this is Webster's Dictionary, any available current. So whatever is available. Bible tells us in the last days that men's ears will be itchy and they will go with anything that comes along. He says, Webster says, to drift is to move or float smoothly and effortlessly. To move along a line of least resistance. Man, that sounds good, doesn't it? That's good. To move in a random or casual way. To become carried along and subject to no guidance or control. To vary or deviate randomly from a set course or heading. It's to drift. Kind of just go with the flow, man. Just whatever. Just whatever. We're, we're loose. We're good. We're all right. If it feels good, it's okay not to be okay. I'll move on. <laughs> Too often I see this attitude in Christians. It's amazing to me. Let me tell you something. God wants us to be deliberate. He was deliberate. He wants us deliberate. Number two, drifting is an unconscious process. It's possible to drift and not even be aware that you're caught in a current. There was a man years ago, uh, several years ago anyway, that rented a, he rented a small paddle boat and headed out to uh, paddle around one of the Hawaiian reefs. And there were buoys out there that he failed to see and failed to read their sign that said, be aware, strong currents past this point. So he went on anyway, not realizing what he was getting in, himself into. 
And finally, when he did notice that he was caught in a current, it was too late. And 42 late days later, they picked him up somewhere by Okinawa in a Japanese fishing boat. <laughs> what happened? I, I, have you ever had that happen? It's like, holy cow. Where have I been for the last couple weeks? You're drifting. You're drifting. It's possible to do that and not even know. We never drift upstream or against the tide. When we were pastoring in Needles, we oftentimes floated in the river. We would go up, up river, probably two, three miles to a field where you could park and all of that. And there was always somebody that would take our car down to a place called Jack Smith Park. It was kind of on the southern end of, or the, the far end of Needles. And we would, it would take, I don't know, half hour, 45 minutes just to float along the river. And I never one time ever saw anybody floating up river. There was no one in a tube. What are you doing? I'm just floating to Laughlin. No, you're going to Havasu. <laughs> Only things that were under power could go upstream. Floating is always downstream. And you know what the funny thing is? We saw a lot of stuff floating downstream. Some stuff you didn't want to see. Number four, speed always increases downstream. I told this story in the first service. Uh, Kathy and I and, and the kids, you know, Amy and Jason and Andy, we uh, took a vacation. Amy was probably about three years old. So this is like 2001 or yeah, I think it was 2001. And we went to Denver. We have some friends up there, Pastor Ron and Susan Simpkins, and they lived in Denver at the time, pastoring a church up there. So we went up to see them and spent a week up there for vacation because there's a, you know, Six Flags over Denver or whatever it's called, Elitch Gardens, I think. And then there's a big water park. And so we went to the water park one day, and, and so we're all doing our thing. The boys went off and do their thing. And, and so somehow we convinced the boys to play with Amy for a little while so Kathy and I, Ron and Susan, could go on this one slide. And basically this slide is you, it's the tallest slide there. You, you go, go up about 10 stories, and I'm not joking. And there's basically a round raft. It's a blow-up raft. Now, what we didn't notice was the sign, beware's weight limit, 850 pounds. So we thought, and I'm a pretty big guy. Ron's a pretty big guy. Uh, Kathy and Susan are, you know, they're okay, they're, but they're medium. We get in the boat, and the first time we went down, we drew blood. We were going so fast as we were going through the curves, the, 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 the plastic of the slide curves up and it has kind of a lip like this. We were going all the way up to where we, the points we were upside down. And we're starting to fall and grabbing each other. We had claw marks all over each other, all this stuff. And then the, the horrific thing was, as you're coming down the last few, and I mean, we're moving, buddy, because we calculated, we, I got everybody to confess their weight, and it was 970 pounds in that boat. 
And we started coming, when we hit the straightaway, there's a guy at the bottom in a, like a four-foot pool that you splash down in the pool, and he sees us coming, and how fast, his eyes were probably the size of saucers, man. I'm telling you, and he's got, got to stop us. We hit that water, we hit that thing, and I'm telling you, there was a tidal wave probably four foot went over him. We plowed him over, and we slid all the way up on the concrete. So what we had to do is, of course, you have to do it again. <laughs> that's, when we, that's when we noticed the sign. We didn't say anything to the guy like, hey, we're overweight here. He knew. Because when he sent us down, he said, good luck, because he pushes the boat. <laughs> he knew exactly what he was doing. Number six. Drifting is always dangerous to others. If a ship gets loose, if, if a ship in a harbor loses its mooring, it will crash into other ships. And it will bring damage. When, when you as a Christian are drifting, you will bump into other Christians. And finally, drifting always if somebody don't intervene, it always ends in shipwreck. So how do I know if that's happening to me? Well, here's some signs. First and foremost, if you're drifting, there will be a diminished desire for God's Word. So how does that happen? I, I love God's Word. I know you do. So do I. But what happens is we never say it like, ah, yeah, I don't need the Bible. I'm just going to put that over there. It's we just, you know, I, man, my life is so dang busy. I got a lot going on, man. I got this going on and that going on and this going on and that going on. I just got a lot going on. I really, I just, you know, I, I, I get my word. I, you know, Pastor, I, when, you, when you preach, you know, we read the Bible. Ain't enough. Not even close. I'll tell you what, here's what I'll do. If you are convinced that getting the, your daily requirement of word is enough once a week at church, then the only time that you can eat physically is the hour that you're here at church. No more. If you do that, I'm on board. It won't work, will it? Oh, it might for a little while. You might be able to muscle up the willpower to, to hold off, but in time, things will begin to break down in you because you do not have the daily intake of the nutrition spiritually that you need. And see, church, one of the things that I see in Christianity right now is I see that the Word of God is being set aside. We, we, we do it for all kinds of things. We set it aside for self-help books. We set it aside for sermons. We set it aside for worship. All those things. We listen to worship music. And we're not even really worshiping. We're just listening. And church, that's what you've got to understand. This is a, a lifestyle of entering in. I feed myself the Word of God. I enter into His presence. I enter into a conversation with Him. I enter into worship where I am from my innermost being. I am giving that to Him. But if I don't have time for that, I might be drifting. Amen. There's a diminishing desire for prayer. And again, we relegate it. It's not that we don't think that prayer is important. We know it is. 
but we just don't got time. And, and quite honestly, things are going smoothly right now, so I really don't need him to do anything. Right? I, I am not, I am, I, I love you. Prayer was never meant to be plan B to get out of crisis. Prayer was meant to be a conversation in the context of relationship where we talk with our Father, that we commune with Him and fellowship with Him. Another sign of spiritual drifting is there is a diminishing desire to be with God's people. Because after all, you guys are a trial, man. It's hard. I'm telling you, it's hard to get along with people, uh, Christians, man. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to blame this on Pastor Howard so I don't get in trouble. But he used to say, Pastor Howard used to say, some of the meanest people he ever met were Christians. And sometimes we could just get to a point, it's like, you know what, man, I just can't take all that drama. Because, you know what, here's, I think this is the problem. The problem is, is we just have this real compassion, or not compassion, uh, uh, what is the word, um, desire to complain. Christians complain like no other. Oh, man, the weather around here, holy cow, man, it's hot, hot, hot. Oh my gosh, it's cold. My Lord, it's cold. Man, it's windy in this place. Man, I wish the wind would blow to blow all this, you know, allergens, you know, all the pollen out of here. Well, what is it? You want it hot, cold, windy, still? What do you want? God's like, I don't know what they want. I don't know what they want me to do. I'm going to give them a hurricane and that way they can figure it out. And I think because of the fact that we complain, and, and, and you know what, we're always noted for what we're against. What happens is it gets tiring. We, we, you know what, church, we're the people with the greatest, greatest reality of victory in all the earth. The joy of the Lord is our strength, peace. That is ununderstandable. I mean, you can't even, you cannot give reason why you're so peaceful. We, we live in the presence of God. We are children of the Most High. And let's, let's just rejoice. Paul says rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. It's what happens when we're drifting. We just can't hardly stand ourselves. Then there's a diminishing desire to share the gospel. It's like, yeah, man, I, somebody else will get to that. I, I know it's important, and I know it's important, but there are people that are called to that ministry. I'll move on. And there's an increasing desire for the things of this world. So I think sometimes what we have to do is stop and take some inventory and go, wait a second, where am I at? 
Where, where am I at? What's really happening in my life? So real quick, as we bring this to a close, I'm going to give you some remedies against drifting. Number one, keep the boat moving. In other words, keep growing. Listen to Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. It says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. That, is, that, that, that verse of Scripture should be committed to memory by every Christian on the planet. And the reason why is there is so much being said. Look at Therefore, as you have received Christ, walk in Him, be rooted in Him, built up in Him, established in Him, just as you have been taught, abounding in all of that with thanksgiving. That, my friends, will keep you tied down. That will keep you from drifting. That will keep you on course. That will keep you safe in any storm. Keep the boat moving. Keep growing. Number two, watch out for undercurrents. In other words, pay attention. I think if there was anything that I had to teach my children more than anything else, it was this, pay attention. I remember when the boys were small. Isn't it funny how little boys always want to put their glass right on the edge of the table? Right where their fork is so that they can make sure that they knock it off. And then, isn't it amazing how short their attention span is to pay attention to what's going on in front of them? That is a mark of immaturity. It's not that they're bad. It's you have to be taught. Pay attention. There are forces in this life. There are things in this life that want to take you out. And if you don't pay attention, you will become their unwitting victim. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 and 17 says, Look therefore carefully how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. In other words, there is an unwise way to walk, and there is a wise way to walk. Redeeming the time. In other words, don't waste your time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be not foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You know what? This has become, that last phrase has become something important to me just recently. You know, oftentimes in prayer, I will pray about the things that God's given me, the, 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 the thoughts, the visions, all these different things. The other day, yesterday, in fact, I, I was out driving around and, and, and I was kind of thinking, talking to a friend and, and we were doing different things and, and I just felt God sneak a little word in and he kind of reiterated it on the way to church this morning. He says, why don't you pray about what I want? Good idea. Pay attention. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now I know that that devil has had all his teeth put, pulled, but I can tell you, he can gum you pretty good. You ever, been, you, ever, you ever been pinched? You ever been in church and had your mom reach over and pinch you really, I mean really hard? Like it, it kind of put a mark, it left a mark. I mean they pinch, it's like, oh my God, that hurt. You ever been pinched hard? Well, that's what the devil does. Look at he'll gum you until you can't take it no more. He will pinch you. He'll, he'll bite down. You ever, I, I was bit by a horse once. 
And their horse's teeth are not known to be sharp, but their jaws are tough. Boy, and when he bit on my arm, that was a lot. It was like, wow. He didn't break the skin or nothing, but he bruised me all the way around. And that's like the devil. And what the devil will do is he'll gum you. He's looking. He's looking for somebody that's not paying attention. And he'll lure you in. Go, come here. Come just a little bit closer. He's like a dog on a leash. He'll be really friendly until you get real close. And then he'll pinch your hand. (sighs) And he won't let go. We have to pay attention. And number four, expect, or number three, expect to go against the tide. Expect to go against the tide. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, acceptable to God, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed. In other words, don't be molded in the shape of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. There are going to be days when you're going to go against the flow. There are going to be days. I remember there was a time when I worked out at Cotter and Company. I was a truckloader, and those guys would torment me. They'd cuss and tell dirty jokes and dirty stories and all that, and I'd have to walk away, and it was lonely, and I was alone. But you know what? Every one of them within months would seek me out for prayer. Why? Because I knew I had an answer. They knew I didn't compromise my stand. I had to go against the flow. And then finally, and Jason, if you would come, please, we must have a strong anchor. I remember years ago hearing a story. It was two young men that had finally bought a sailboat that they always wanted. They had gone in partnership, and they got this sailboat. They lived in Florida, and they took it down to this one harbor that was known for being safe. And so they got the, uh, the, the slip, and they got the boat in, and everything was good, and it was docked, and and uh, they were all good. But then a week later, they get the news that a hurricane's coming. And they meant, oh, we haven't even had a chance to really go sailing. And, and so they, they decided, well, what we're going to do is make sure our sailboat doesn't get ruined. And so they went and bought a bunch of rope. And they started tying that rope to everything around that sailboat. All the way around it and everything. I mean, there was, it looked like a dope-crazed spider web. And this old man walked up and he looked at him and says, boys, what you doing? He goes, well, we're tying down our sailboat. We want to make sure that when the hurricane hits, it's safe. He goes, that boat's out of here, man. He goes, well, they said, what do you mean? He goes, you've tied down to everything that will blow away. He says, you need to go anchor deep. He said, that boat's meant to float. He goes, turn it into the wind, anchor deep, and let it ride. He said, it'll do what it was created to do. You know, the Bible talks about we have an anchor into the very throne room of God. It's called hope. Hebrews chapter, I believe, 7, 6 or 7 talks about it. We need to anchor deep, church. Anchor deep. Look at Psalms. Psalms chapter 1, I believe it is, if to put up on the screen. Or, yeah, uh, 3, I'm sorry. It says, blessed is the man. Actually, it's, I don't know why it says 3 because that's actually 1. It's 1, 1 through 3. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And his law, he meditates day and night. 
and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Listen, he who meditates on the word has deep, deep roots. When the storm comes, he, with, he weathers it. His leaf doesn't wither. He always bears fruit. Everything he does prospers. Why? Because he's anchored deep. So if you would, would you bow your head with me for a moment? Father, we thank you so much for the word that you've given us, Lord. We pray that you challenge our hearts. Father, we pray that you, God, would encourage us and strengthen us, God. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, God, that as we go from this place, that you would remind us of this truth, God, that we would do inventory and that we would correct anything that may not be right. And Father, we give you the glory and we give you the honor. And I wonder as every head is bowed, every eye is closed, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, but you would like to, if you'd lift your hand and say, that's me, Pastor, I need Jesus. Would you lift your hand all across this place? Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah. I'm going to ask real quick if my, my ministry team would come, find their place up here. These folks come up so that you can receive prayer. And even if you didn't raise your hand or, or whatever you have need of, if you want to talk with one of them or, or get prayer for healing or whatever you might have need of, come up right after we dismiss. They'll pray with you and believe God with you. Let's stand to our feet all across this place. And we're going to release you today. We're going to let you go. You guys have a great day. Um, enjoy your afternoon. And remember, don't be drifting. God bless. Thank you for listening to the New Life Kingman podcast. We can't wait to see you next week.